Good morning, church. How are we doing today? So nice to see you all here. If it's your first time, welcome. We are glad that you're here with us this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean Fenner. I am the small group coordinator here at Redemption, also part of the preaching rotation. So it's an honor and privilege to be up here with you guys this morning. So I do have a couple announcements. Um, the first one is um, next week, for you guys who are new, um, been here for just a you know, few weeks or a few months, and um, we are going to host a meet and greet after the second service next week. So if you have yet to meet all the pastors and the church leadership, if you want to just get to know more about what redemption is and who we are, then next week is a great opportunity again after the second service we'll be doing that. Um, also, this is for the, the fellas. Um, April 21st through 23rd, we will be doing a men's retreat. This will be in conjunction with our friends over at Riverside Community Church. I've been doing this retreat for probably, I think, six years now. Um, but we want to get a, a good group of guys from Redemption to come join us there um, for that. It is at Seneca Hills Bible Camp. Again, April 21st through 23rd. Cost is $120, but that includes all of your lodging and all of the food for the weekend. We also includes a nice steak dinner on Saturday night, which we all love that. And uh, it's a great time to just come out and fellowship. It's a great time to, to get closer with God, to kind of dig in, get away for the weekend, just kind of forget the, the things that, that are at home and just uh, connect. Um, so I'll have more details as we get closer to that with some, you know, a little bit more description about what we're going to be doing there. So I think that is all the announcements that I have there for this morning. Um, today, um, we are going into Colossians chapter three. So if you want to open up your Bibles, um, you can do that. So anyone in this room don't know who Mike Tomlin is? Is anyone doesn't know who Mike Tomlin is? Right, he's the Pittsburgh Steelers football coach. Mike Tomlin has mastered a way to speak without saying anything. I don't know if you guys have ever watched his press conferences or interviews. He doesn't really say much of anything, but he says a lot of words. He uses cliches constantly. Um, we call them here in Pittsburgh Tomlinisms. Um, you know, he, he just loves to throw those out because he really doesn't want to answer any questions, so he just uses these cliches. One of the things that he loves to, to say, one of his favorite phrases, and his team has actually picked up one, and they use it all the time, is the standard is the standard. The standard is the standard. What does that mean? Well, in, 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 in terms of the Pittsburgh Steelers, what it means is that regardless of who you are, regardless of where you were drafted, regardless if you're a 15-year veteran or you're a, a first-year rookie, regardless if you're a starter or a bench player, Regardless of how much money you make, when something happens and it's your time to get into the game, the standard is the standard, and you're going to play to the standard of the Pittsburgh Steelers. You're going to put out your best effort. You're going to perform the best that you can. That's the standard they have set. We have grown up and, and lived with standards all of our lives. As kids, we had standards when we were growing up. Our parents said, okay, here's the rules, here's the standards of this house, and these are the things that you have to do. You know, for us, before we were allowed to, when I was a kid, allowed to go outside and, and play, we had to make sure that our homework was done. That was the standard. Every day, if you have homework, do that, then go play. Right? There were times that we would say, my mom and dad would say, listen, you're not going to go do anything until this room is cleaned. This is the standard. Clean the room, then you go do. If you don't clean the room, then you'll stay in that room all day. There were plenty of times I stayed in that room all day. 
because I didn't want to clean it, <laughs> or it was too messy to do so. Um, but that's the standard. That's what we had to set. We go through standards at work, right? Standard practices. There's books out there. Standard practices in our, in our, in our jobs. They are to be done a certain way, and we all have to do it that same exact way. Hospitals are, are full of standard practices, fortunately. Right? They, they go, and, and each nurse does a, does a certain thing the same way, regardless of the nurse. It's the standard practice. Paul here in Colossians 3 is, is giving us a new standard that we need to follow. We see that, that Paul is telling us that there are certain things that we need to do to make sure that we're living up to that standard. So we're going to jump in and we're going we're gonna to see what Paul is talking about and what this new standard looks like for us and what we need to do to make sure that we are living up to that standard. So let's jump into the scripture. We are at Colossians 3, starting at verse 1. He says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self and its practices, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. Let's pray. God, thank you for your words. And Lord, I pray right now that you would let your Holy Spirit fill this place. Lord, I pray that you would just convict us as we need to be convicted. Show us the things in our lives that we need to start making some changes in. Lord, I pray that you begin to work even now as we sit here and pray, Lord, that you would just open our hearts and our minds so that we can receive the message that you are teaching us today. Lord, pray that you would speak through me, that your words be my words. I pray that you would just fill this place right now. And we give you the glory for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we saw in the first two chapters of Colossians that, that Fred went through, um, those were very biblical foundation things. Those were gospel things. Uh, Paul got a report from Epaphras uh, of some things that were happening in the Colossians church that were a little bit alarming. So Paul felt necessary to write a letter out to these folks to say, okay, here's what's going on. You guys are doing a great job for the most part, but I see some things that are happening that we need to kind of work through. So Paul encourages them first and foremost and then kind of lays out some things. Remember, here's the gospel of Jesus. This is what Jesus has done for you guys. So remember that first and foremost. Secondly, remember that you guys have made a choice to follow God. We see this throughout chapter two. You've made a choice to follow God. Here's what God has done for you. Here's what you've done. Now in chapter three, Paul switches gears a little bit, and he's now telling the church, because you've made these choices, there are some implications to those choices. 
There are some things that you now need to do. Some things now that you need to change. So we're going to go through that verse by verse. You're going to notice here a couple of the verses are going to be broken up like 1A, 1B, 3A, 3B. I just, some, some of these I felt like work together, better together. So that's why you'll see that. Also, parents, as we read through that scripture, you notice there's some adult-themed things that are going on in here. And I'm not going to shy away from those adult-themed things. We're going to keep it PG, of course. But, but if you have kids and you're not quite ready for them to hear certain things that are going to be on here, now's your warning. So, um, but like I said, I'm going to keep it PG. Nothing's going to be too outrageous, but I do want to let you guys know that. So let's look at first verse. This is 1A. He said, so if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, we see this um, throughout um, last, was it last week or week before in Colossians 2.12, the same concept was, was being spoken of. He says, 2.12, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised from the dead. When we were saved through Christ, and we were baptized, symbolically we were dunked under that water, we died, and when we came back up, we were raised from the dead like Christ. That's what he's talking about here. He also says this in Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was buried, just just as Christ was raised, we also were raised. And now we walk in newness of life. Galatians 2, 20 goes even a little bit further. He says, we have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The, now, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We made a choice. Now we are different. We have been buried and we have been raised with Christ. Our lives are different at this point in time. So because of that, and we'll see throughout this passage, there's a lot of call and response. There is a lot of, because you've done this, now you need to do this. So we'll see that throughout. So in verse 1b, he says this, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Throughout chapter 2, and, 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 and we see, and Fred talked about this a couple weeks ago as well, there are This is not the only game in town when it comes to religion. There are a lot of other religions that are pushing their agenda. There are a lot of false teachers who are are trying to infiltrate the church of Colossians. There are a lot of people who who are trying to, to push their own laws and their own rules and their own whatever it is. Paul got this report, and and, and Paul now is concerned because some of the people are starting to kind of look to those things, kind of to, to maybe get drawn to those things. It's no different today, right? We, we see all over the place a lot of other things that are pulling our attention. There are a lot of other religions that are out there. There are a lot of other people pushing their own agendas. So it's really not any different. But what Paul is saying here, he's telling them to stop doing it. Stop looking at all these things that are here on earth. Because guess what? None of that matters anymore to you. None of it. Because we are made new in Christ, 
We, in turn, should be seeking the things above. We, in turn, should be turning our eyes away from those earthly things, pointing them upwards, and looking at what Christ wants for our lives. And this is not something that we just do once. This is a present tense action. This is something that we need to continue to do on a daily basis. This is something that is our lifetime quest. Each and every day, we are to be looking above at the things of Christ. The results of our new life is that our standard of living has changed. And because Christ, before Christ, we lived for ourselves, we lived by the world standard, and now that we have been raised with him, our standard is now determined by God and his word. And in order for us to make sure that we're doing that, we need to leave behind the worldly standard, and we need to make some changes in our lives. We need to turn our eyes from what's going on around us in the world, not worry about those things anymore, and point them upwards. And then he continues in verse 2 to kind of push us even further. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And in verse 3a, he says, for you died. Again, call and response. You died you were raised again. Now it's our responsibility to seek the things above, but it's also our responsibility to put our minds on the things above. Romans 12, 2 says, and it's a pretty popular verse, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Oftentimes our relationship with Christ is, is seen as a, as a heart thing full of emotions. And while that is certainly true, it is a heart thing, we can't overlook the head part of this relationship with God. And while heartfelt and passionate faith in God is essential for our relationship with him, most of the time when the Bible is talking about the, the heart, it's actually talking about our intelligence. The heart, when this was written, was actually considered the, the center of our minds. This is where our thoughts came from was our hearts. In fact, the Bible over and over tells us that, that we need to believe. We need to believe. Belief in and of itself is a head action, not necessarily a heart action. We have to believe in our heads. And most people, when they believe something, they tend to act based on that belief. So if we believe that God has made us new, if we believe that we've been raised with him, then we must also believe and accept that the standard by which we live has changed. We need to put our minds on the thing of, things of God because we have changed. This is what we now believe. So my first point, our new life requires a new perspective. God's standard is not based on what the world has, has to say, not based on our culture. Our, our lives, now that we have been raised with him, should look completely different than it once did. The way we, we look at things, the way we focus on things, the things that we see ahead of our lives should look completely different than it did when we, had, when we did not have Christ in our lives. This should not be the same thing. Our perspective has to change. Then we see in verse 3b, he says, You've died, you've been raised, now you seek the things 
above. Now you put your minds on things above. And because of that, also, your life, verse 3b, is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden in Christ with God. What does that mean? What does that look like? And I'll tell you why. I took some time to kind of dig into this. And honestly, this, to unpack this truly would probably take 35, 40 minutes. There is a lot of stuff on this. And there are a lot of opinions on what this actually looks like and what this means. I think I've kind of narrowed down to a couple things here. And uh, we'll go through this quickly. I'm not going to take 35 minutes to go through this. I could, but we won't. Um, so let's start with Titus 3, 7. says this, that having been justified by his grace, we have become heirs with the hope of eternal life. We are now God's children. We now belong to him. And because of that, it is now our responsibility to live completely by what he says. You think about when you have kids, right? The kids, they're, they're, they're yours for a time being. You, they belong to you. You're responsible for them. And their responsibility in turn is to listen to what you tell them to a certain point, up to a certain age. That's their responsibility, to be obedient. Ours is the same. Now that we are children of God, our responsibility is to live our lives according to what he tells us. Our words, our actions, they must line up with God's word. And while we are still here on earth and we are in this world physically, what we believe, the way we act, and the way we live must be separate from the world. The standard of our culture today says that it's all about us. We are the center of our own lives. We want to be seen. We want to be loved. We want to be noticed. But being hidden in Christ means this, that we have taken on a new identity. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The standard of our culture tells us otherwise. But we have a new identity. Now, this is not... <laughs> possible for non-believers to understand. They can't comprehend this. This is impossible. This is hidden from them. In fact, there are a lot of things that as we go through life that remain hidden from us that have yet to be revealed. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says that, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration for as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There are things that have yet to be revealed to us. There are things that are impossible for the non-believers to see. They remain hidden. My next point, our new identity is established in Christ alone. Our new identity is established in Christ alone. Being hidden in Christ means that our identity has been established not based on anything that we have done, not based on anything that's in this world, not based on anything that the way the world says we should believe. It is based solely on what Christ has done for us. Being hidden in Christ means that we are denying ourselves and that we are changing the standard of our lives. Regardless of whether or not we understand it completely, our responsibility is to follow Christ and what he tells us to do. That is being hidden in Christ. But here's the thing. Verse 4 kind of helps explain this to leave him a little bit further and, and gives us a little better understanding of this. He says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, 
Paul references multiple times throughout the Bible, and I just kind of referenced it, all right, for me to live is Christ, in Philippians 1.21, Galatians 2.20, which we already said, it is no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul here is suggesting this. Paul understanding that the, the moment that he receives salvation, that it is no longer his life, but now it's Christ's life. He says, and what is true for him is true for all believers. For all of us who believe. That is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. This is no longer my life. This is now Christ's life. Not only that, Paul then also encourages the church by reminding them that because Christ is now my life, something pretty incredible is going to happen to us. Something pretty awesome is going to happen. Jesus, when he comes in his second coming, will be revealed to all. And everyone will know who he truly is. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world. Philippians 2.10 says that every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and even those below the earth. Every knee will bow. Everyone will know who he is. But the cool thing is this, church, this is the cool thing about this. God is saying, Jesus is going to share this day with us. John, 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. When Christ is revealed in glory, we will also be revealed in glory. There will be nothing else hidden. We are hidden in Christ right this moment. But there will be a time where when Christ is revealed, we will be revealed with him. What a privilege and an honor that's going to be. We don't deserve it. But Christ says, I'm going to share it with you if, if, because you died and because you were raised again, if you keep up to my standard, I will share this with you. Paul then switches gears a little bit on us. And he said, okay, those, those are all good things. But listen, there's some work that we need to do as believers in Christ. There's some things that, that we need to fix. Paul provides some very specific things that we must do, that we must do in order to live according to God's standard. And, and I mentioned a little bit earlier that, that there are some things that we are going to need to change. My next point, change requires that we quit something. Change in our lives, regardless of what that change is, requires that we stop doing what we're doing currently and we do something different. If I'm driving down the road and there's a blockage in that road, I need to now change directions because I have to stop doing or going the direction that I'm going and I have to go a different way. This is what change looks like in our lives. We have to quit something. Anything this world or our culture deems is okay or good, but does not line up with God's standard, found in God's word, must be eliminated from our lives and removed from our minds. Paul in these next five verses gives us some very specific things that we, as believers, need to eliminate out of our lives. And Paul knew that, that these things, back then even, were a struggle for believers. And guess what, church? They're a struggle for us now. Nothing's really changed. In fact, it's probably gotten worse because we have a lot more things that grab our attention. So let's jump into this verse 5. 
He says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. I want to go through some of these things individually, um, but also as a whole, because we'll, we'll notice there's a connection between all of these things. So let's start out with sexual immorality. And I think for us to truly understand what sexual immorality is, we need to first and foremost understand what sexual morality is and what that means and what that looks like. These are not my words. These are words coming directly from the Bible. These are scriptures. These are what God wrote about sexual morality and morality. First and foremost, we know this, that God created Adam and created Eve, man and woman. He created them so that they will serve each other, so they will love each other, and so that they will be fruitful and multiply. To have a sexually moral relationship. That's what God created for them for. All right, and then we see in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, he says, but because sexual immorality is so common, again, Paul knows this is an issue for us. Sexual immorality is so common back then, even today. He said, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relationships with her own husband. Notice the wording here. He doesn't say each man should have sexual relationships with a woman. He doesn't say each woman should have sexual relationships with a man. He says, woman, have sexual relations with your husband. Men, have it with your wife. Very specific. Then we see in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is to be honored by all. Marriage is to be honored by all. Not just husbands and wives, but all, men and women, Married, unmarried, honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So here's what we got. Adam and Eve created to serve and love each other. Men should be with their wives. Women should be with their husbands. And the marriage bed, where they sleep, should be undefiled. So based off the scripture here, what we can determine is that sexual morality occurs between a man and a woman in a married relationship. Anything, so we conclude that anything outside of that should be considered sexual immorality. That's what the scripture tells us. And that's pretty tough for a lot of people. But this is what the Bible says. I'm not making this up. Paul then gives us three words that kind of all point back to sexual immorality. The first word we see is impurity. Anything that is not clean, anything that's dirty, anything that we struggle to, to get out that unclean thing in our lives. Impurity occurs when, you know, we, 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 we see something attractive walking down the street or in, 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 you know, wherever, and we take a look, and then we kind of stop and we keep dwelling on that. That's impurity. These thoughts that are going through our heads. That's the beginning part. The next word he uses is lust. Lust is the desire to have the things that we shouldn't. So when we have impure thoughts and we allow them to kind of continue on, those then turn into lust because now we want that thing that we can't have. That is, that is going to defile the marriage bed. 
We want it. This is what happens um, that, 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 that we commonly struggle with, I think, on a regular basis. This is typically the starting point for sexual immorality. A lust for something that we shouldn't or can't have. The next one we see is evil desires. Evil desires is a desire of the flesh. This is what happens when we allow lust to linger too long. And then it becomes an action. It becomes a selfish thing. We no longer care about anything else or anyone else. We want it and I'm going to go get it. This is sexual desire. All three pointing back to sexual immorality. And then my next point here, unchecked sin draws us away from God's standard. Because what happens is this. We allow these things to, to, to hang around in our lives. And eventually what happens, and Paul uses this word greed, and he says, which is idolatry, which uh, some, doesn't really seem like it matches with these other words that he uses, but the reality is, is exactly what we need to hear. Because what happens when we let these things kind of hang out, these things start to take over our lives. And these things then become an obsession and become an addiction in our lives. So much so that everything else doesn't matter. I want more of this. This is what I want, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. And when we allow those things to happen, guess what? Those things become idolatry. Because now we are worshiping something other than our Lord and Savior. This is what obsession looks like. This is what addiction looks like. I've seen lives destroyed from sexual immorality. Verse 6 says this. This is why. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And, you, and in verse 7, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. And I'm sure it comes to no surprise to any of us that Sin oftentimes has consequences. God will punish the sin in our lives. And sometimes that, sin, that, that punishment is immediate, but oftentimes that takes some time before we feel those consequences. I've seen lives destroyed, like I said, because people have allowed sexual immorality to, to, to stay in their lives, and they have gone so far deep down into a hole that they've lost their wives They've lost their families. They've lost their jobs. Everything that they've known previously to this, this addiction, to this obsession is gone. And now they have to try to figure out how to dig back up. That's the consequences of sexual immorality. And it happens quickly. Addiction happens quickly. And we have to check it before it gets too far. Because once it does, we get way down into it. And Paul also says, and keep in mind that, listen, I, you might be good right now, but you once lived in this. You were once full of sin. Remember where you came from, because I don't want to see you guys falling back on old sins. I don't want to see you guys going back to your old life. Just keep in mind that you came from that before. And listen, believe it or not, we are still susceptible to those sins. Spoiler alert. It happens. Paul is warning them, please, remember where you came from. Don't forget that. Paul then, if that weren't enough, says, I got another list for you guys. Here's some more things that we need to change, some more things that we need to quit. These sins are also pretty common in today's culture. These sins may be common in your life. 
These are things that oftentimes we overlook, things that oftentimes we don't really pay attention to because they're not that big of a deal. Maybe they're, they're yeah, it's, but it's, it's mild. It's not that big of a deal. We, we kind of ignore them. Paul picks these out very specifically because these have an impact on the lives of people around them, the people that they're trying to minister to. Verse eight says this, but now put away the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Maybe you're looking at that list and saying, man, okay, this is gonna be a fun one. Anger, let's start with that one. Anger is something I think we all deal with on a regular basis, right? We parents have dealt with anger as they raise their kids. Anyone who sits in traffic on a Monday morning deals with anger as you deal with these crazy drivers each and every day. You know, road rage is really real. (laughs) And it's no joke. Anger happens quickly on the roads today. Anger happens whenever we're at work and something goes wrong. We don't want to deal with that. That's what anger is. It's a charged response to feeling that we have been wronged or when something does not go our way or the way that we want it to. James 1, 19 through 20 says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. We all get angry. I get it. And it's, it's what we do at that very moment when we, we feel it and our face gets a little red and we start feeling it. But what do we do and how do we respond at that very moment? We'll determine whether that goes into sin or not. If I push it away, it's okay to be disappointed in something. That's fine. But it's not okay to be angry because anger is unrighteousness. This is what the Bible says. Anger then also, if we allow that to keep going, turns into wrath. Wrath is the evolution of anger. This is action-driven. This is when we start that deep resentment towards someone. This is when vengeance becomes something that we want to get. We want to see revenge happen. We want to see someone punished for what they did to us. How dare them do that? We need to get them back. This is kind of where it starts to cross the line a little bit, and it almost becomes... For some people, enjoyable because the thought of getting back to someone because we're so full of wrath, we aren't thinking rationally. The thought of getting back to someone is almost exciting. There's an author, Frederick Buchner. He's a pastor and author. Um, He wrote this quote. He said, of the seven, seven deadly sins, I think it's up here, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long lost, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last tooth and morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain that you are given back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger and wrath when we allow it to linger and stay, we'll hurt ourselves. We become bitter. We become burdened. We become so consumed with it. And not only that, but anger will also hurt the people around us. Think about it. When you're angry, who's the first person that you lash out on? Usually the one you love. The one that you're with the most. Whether it be your wife or your husband, your kids, your friends, people you work with. We tend to, to lash out on them. And that anger hurts them. And also, 
anger has a tendency to hook anger. You know what that means where, where when we're angry and you know, I know if my wife, if I were to, to be angry with my wife about something, the natural response is her to be angry back at me. Anger hooks anger. So not only are we hurting ourselves, we're also hurting the people that we love, but we're also causing other people to sin. Because when we're angry, other people get angry back at us because we're angry. It's a cycle. And it's not helping anyone. Specifically, it's not helping our relationship with Christ. It's not allowing us to live up to God's standard. The next word we see is this, malice. Malice is to have ill will towards someone, to see someone injured emotionally or physically. This is really where he just vengeance now becomes physical. We also then see slander. Slander is to speak evil about someone with the intentions to hurt them. This is where rumors start, gossip, spreading lies about someone. And then the last thing, probably the thing that we all look at and say, man, this is tough. The last is filthy language. Filthy language is vulgar or foul words that others may find offensive. Now, this is a tricky one, because what's offensive, Sean? What's offensive? Well, I'll give you a story. Now, I'm going to tell you the story, not because in any way am I boasting, because that's certainly not what I'm doing. I am far, far from the, being able to boast about anything in my life. But many years ago, when I was in high school, um, I had a foul mouth. It was, it was not pretty. Um, I remember we, we were at a basketball game. We were videotaping the basketball game. And then we went out, my, my friends and I, as a group of us, went to Eaton Park after the game. And, and we kept the video camera running. And we were just hanging out, talking, like any other kids do. And then we went back a few days later to my buddy's house to watch this video because we've not seen it yet. And we wanted to check out the game and we wanted to see what shenanigans we got up to that evening. And uh, um, we were watching it with my friend's parents. And I think my friend's aunt was there. And as this video was going, we started to, you know, getting to the point where as after the game we were hanging out, man, the foul language that was coming out of this video was embarrassing. And mind you, I went to a Christian school. And this is how I was speaking. And I thought back to that years later when I, when I needed to make a change in my life. And one of the things that I know that I needed to make a change was, was the way that I was speaking. So I made a very conscious effort at that point in time. And I prayed pretty hard about this, that, that God would change my vocabulary and my vernacular. And thank God he did. And, and, and again, I am not saying this because I'm boasting. I am not perfect. I have my slip-ups every once in a while as well, just like anyone else. But God has really kind of freed me and released me from this desire to want to say curse words. And I say this because people think that's weird. People think that's crazy. I actually had someone tell me at work saying, I don't trust anyone who doesn't swear. What does that even mean? I don't trust someone who doesn't swear. What, why? Why? Because the culture that we live in today is so far removed from the culture that God has set for us, from the standard that God has set for us, I should say, that, that things like swearing is normal. Things like anger is expected. Sexual immorality is, is part of today's world. And people don't look at it differently. So I say that foul language, wow, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Guess what it is? Because we want to continue to push the worldly standards away and we want to bring God's standard back to this world. And for us to do that, guess what? We have to stop saying things that we shouldn't be saying. We have to stop anger. We have to stop sexual immorality. And it starts with just simple things like watching how we speak. That's how we get God's standard back into the world today.
Paul then says another thing. And he says, in verse 9a, do not lie to one another. Stop lying. Much like anger, lying really comes back to hurt us first and foremost. But it also hurts a lot of other people around us. And this is simple as well. When we walk into a church on Sunday morning and someone asks you, hey, how you doing? How you feeling? You say, oh, I'm fine, I'm great. But then later on that afternoon, you're going home crying because life is so miserable. Guess what? You just lied about it. Why are we lying to each other in church? The place that we should be telling the truth to each other. Paul recognizes this. Paul says, listen, we have all these things that we need to fix in our lives. Why are we lying about them? Be truthful and honest. You know why? Because then I can hold you accountable and I can help you overcome it. Stop lying to each other. Be truthful. Be honest. So that we then can then get God's standard back. Because we're going to do it together. And I assure you, church, that it's easier when we do it together. When we hold each other accountable for the sins in our lives. And I can say to you, hey, what do you need? How can I help you? And you can do the same back to me. That's how we get God's standard back into the world. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, The Lord hates things. Six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble amongst the brothers. A lying tongue and a lying witness. Church, stop lying. Tell the truth. Be honest with each other. Verse 9b, he says, since you've done these things, he says, now that we know we can't be doing these things because, he says, since you have put off the old self and his practices, and then 10a, and have put on the new self. Stop lying. Stop doing these things because you've done this. Again, a call and response. We need to, to we, we, we made this choice when we, when we, when we followed God to say, I'm no longer going to live this way. That was the choice that we all made when we received salvation in our lives. Now that choice, again, has implications, and it's up to us to put these things away and start putting on those new things. God says, well, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to let you do this alone, because here's what I'm doing in the background. He says, 10b, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. My last point here, living by God's standard means that we reflect His image. As we surrender to God's word, as we submit to God's standard, he will transform us. He will renew us back to his image, the image of God, the image that when he created Adam, that he intended us for us to look like until sin came into our lives. God says we're going to have a better understanding of how we should live. Our desires will change and all this will happen so that you can better reflect me, so that we can better reflect Christ. Our old self was full of sin. We didn't care what other people saw, but God's standard dictates that we now care about what people see. And we want them to see Christ in our lives. And guess what? Sexual immorality doesn't allow that to happen. Anger, wrath doesn't allow that to happen. Foul language does not allow that to happen. And while our bodies are, are withering away, some faster than others, myself included, while our bodies are withering away on the outside, God, when we are living by his standard, is renewing us daily on the inside. 
Because one day we will be revealed with him in glory. So God is preparing us for that. And in the last verse here, we see in verse 11, he said, in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. Paul clarifies to the church that there is no one exempt, right? It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what you've believed in the past. It doesn't matter what culture you've come from. It doesn't matter what lot of life you've been, if you're rich or if you're poor. Each and every person will have the opportunity to be revealed with Christ in glory. Each and every person has the opportunity to receive salvation in their lives. But he also says this, none of us are exempt from the fact that we need to put to death the worldly standards in our lives, that we need to make the changes that are necessary, and that we need to now submit to God's standard of living. None of us are exempt, church. And maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, man, this is a lot, Sean. You really kind of laid it in on me, Sean. Well, these are my words. These are God's words. Well, today is a day that we do something about it. Today is a day that we can make the changes in our lives. Today is a day that we can surrender these things to God and say, God, I can't do this on my own. God, I need your help. I'm going to lay these at your feet because I want to live by God's standard and not the world's. I want to change my life because I want to reflect you. And when people see me, I want them to see you. Church, that's what we're here for. That's what this passage is all about. We are a new identity, and that identity is in Christ alone. Are you ready to make the changes necessary to live according to God's standard in your life? If you are, church, today's the day. Let's start now. Together, myself included, I have changes I need to make. I am not perfect. None of us, not the pastors, not the leaders of this church, none of you sitting here. If you're sitting here thinking you're perfect, guess what? You're lying because you're not. None of us are. Church, let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for this message, for what you've done for us, for what you, what you continue to do for us, for making us new on a daily basis, for loving us enough that you say, you know what, I'm gonna continue doing work in your life. And Lord, we're not worthy of that. We don't deserve that, but you do it anyway because you love us that much. God, I pray that you continue that work in our lives. I pray that you continue to, 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 to shape us and mold us and make us new daily so that we can reflect your image. That it's no longer about Sean, but it's about you and you alone. Lord, I want to change lives of other people, but first and foremost, I need to change my own life. So God, I ask right now that you do that. Let your spirit fill me each and every day so that I can walk and step with you on a daily basis. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your message. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship, Lord, that you will continue to convict our hearts and show us the areas in our lives that we need to fix and that we need to change. Lord, we just give you the glory for that. We praise you for that because it's only you that can do those type of things. We surrender to you this morning, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.